The Press Box is here to catch you up on the latest media stories. Hosted by Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker, these guys have the insight on the biggest stories you care about. Check out The Press Box on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. So welcome to another episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we have one of the burgeoning stars of political journalism, I guess we can say. Uh, I hate the term um, rising star because I, I, people still, I'm like, when do you ever get there? But regardless, we have somebody who is just utterly amazing in her field, Maya King. How are you doing today? I am good. Thanks for that intro. I appreciate it. For sure. You know, we usually start each one of our episodes the same way, which is asking our guest about the arc of their career. But what excites me about this interview is that you're at the front end of what I know will be a long, promising career. So tell us how you got into political journalism and how you ended up at Politico. Sure. Um, So I started covering politics uh, at Howard University when I was writing for The Hilltop, covering campus politics. I started as a reporter uh, my freshman year and then became campus editor my sophomore year in 2016, uh, the 2016 to 2017 year, which saw the election, of course, of President Trump, but also a number of interesting developments on campus, namely uh, the selling uh, or the sale of a number of key pieces of property on campus. And it was an interesting moment, I think, for, for Howard and for our president at the time in figuring out just different and really tough decisions that Black leaders have to make, especially in the midst of a huge gentrification boom in D.C. Um, And so that got me really interested in talking to local officials and kind of understanding how all of this works. After I graduated, though, immediately started working for Politico as an intern and wanted to cover HBCUs uh, full time. But it was 2019 on the heels of the president, the 2020 presidential election and the primary and uh, had an opportunity to join the politics team there. And that was really how I got my start. We're going to get into Howard in a second. Um, Howard, by far, is one of the best HBCUs in the country. I would put it right up there, somewhere behind Morehouse. But anyway, I digress. The 1867 Um, institutions, we have a lot in common. (laughs) Your beat last year was the presidential election, and now you're covering the intersection of race and politics. For our listeners that may not read political every day, uh, like some of us do, What's that mean? Talk, talk to me about that intersection of, of politics and race and what kind of stories do you typically write about? Yeah. So, I mean, the way that I that I've tried to shape this speed is largely around uh, some of the, the big 
arguments, movements, and uh, personalities that are animating politics right now. And it just so happens that a lot of that is taking place in the center of race and politics, but particularly Black politics. I think last summer we really saw that with this heightened attention being paid to systemic racism, uh, police violence, and of course the ascendance of a number of key players within the party, Stacey Abrams, Kamala Harris, Jamie Harrison, uh, many others that I'm not not thinking of at this moment. And so, I mean, the way that I've tried to shape this beat is kind of around that and what's new about this moment. I think that uh, we've seen in the past a lot of widespread protests that have brought out, you know, some level of, of change in policy or even in the way that we think about things. But Never have we seen these things intersect with a global pandemic and also a presidential election. So I I think that especially last summer, covering movement politics at the intersection of the 2020 election kind of shaped or at least formed the, the foundation for how I see my coverage now, which is what changed? Answering questions of, you know, how things might be different now from last year and what are the limits of those changes in policy? And I think we're starting to see that as well. One of the things that you just made me think about has been the reemergence of not just these black political figures. Because when you said Jamie, I, I love Jamie. Jamie was a, a Yale and Georgetown graduate, but it's it's a reemergence of these black political figures coming from HBCUs. You had Joyce Beatty from Cheney State as chair of the CBC, Kamala from Howard. Uh, you had Raphael Warnock from Morehouse. You had Stacey Abrams from Spelman and Yogananda Pittman. Uh, who was the chief of the interim chief of the Capitol Police from Oregon State? Is this a reemergence? Is this a, a, a new a realm for Black politicians who graduated from HBCUs? What is your analysis and what have you seen of the role of just not Black politics, but HBCUs in the larger political scene? I've been thinking about this quite a bit um, because, you know, you and I both know as HBCU grads, this is where you get your start uh, in politics, in journalism, in activism. Black colleges across the country have uh, really been breeding grounds for some of the most successful, I I would say all of the most successful civil rights movements in the country across American history. Um, And I think a lot about the AUC with uh, Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock in particular, I think that that HBCUs are in a different place, though, especially last year. Um, Many of them came into more philanthropic and federal dollars than they ever have in their entire uh, existence. And so being able to have more money to actually uh, grow more leaders and keep them in school, like I think that's a really big part of this. And it's also given student leaders more of a voice. You know, I, I, I don't know how different this is because, again, I really just think really highly of HBCUs and believe that this is kind of par for the course, but to see so many alumni really in like the upper, upper echelons of politics, I think that's different. And then of course, my next question is what are they going to do with this power and how, how is the black college experience? How are black colleges going to change as a result, you know, and what are they, what are these leaders going to do with this newfound renown and these new resources that, I mean, I know we were calling for these when I was in school. And even when my mom, my mom's an HBCU grad, she was calling for the same things. So I, that's my big question now is, is, yeah, this is different. But how does it change kind of, I guess, the reality for black colleges? I'm, I can't wait to read your analysis on 
like, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, you can start writing like your, your one year. I mean, it's not over by any stretch, but your one year kind of analysis on, all right, we got you here. Now, what are you going to do to, to show some type of reciprocation for that support, especially with all those leaders we just named, but you're also a Howard grad. And there's, there's obviously a lot happening. One of the, my favorite interviews I've had on this show has been with your current president, who is just a, just a fascinating, fascinating individual, still a surgeon. We had him on talk right after the death of, of uh, Chadwick Bozeman, and he was talking about uh, men's health and 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 such. But um, uniquely enough, your your organization, Politico, has covered uh, the protests, and it's all happening right at a time when HBCU funding has become one of the flashpoints during the Build Back Better negotiations. Why do you think the protests at Howard have given or have gotten the attention? They have because it's 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 not uncommon for students to protest conditions on campus, particularly at HBCUs. So what's different about this protest in this moment, you think? The big difference, of course, is the fact that there's a protest going on while one of their most prominent alumni is in the White House. I think that's the biggest difference. I mean, but do they want her to fix dorm conditions? They just want her to say something because that's what all that's what that's what is at the heart of this, I believe. Black students choose HBCUs in part because they think they're coming home and that they're going to be taken care of and have a unique experience that they're not going to get at predominantly white institutions. And this has been the push and pull, I think, with President Frederick, who was also a Howard alumnus and current students, that they feel perhaps, uh, and I really want to be careful in how I and how I talk about this because I know that negotiations are ongoing. But I think that really at the heart of the students want to be heard and they want to feel like they're being listened to. Definitely, uh, Vice President Harris cannot really do much at all, I don't think, in this situation. <laughs> Maybe she's making calls on the on the back end saying, like, can you can you get it together? But, you know, in Politico's reporting and even the conversations I've had with current students, yes, they definitely want clean rooms. They also want the faculty and student and alumni trustee positions back. But I think they also just really want either an apology or some kind of a full-throated recognition of the fact that their college experience, their undergrad experience, their Howard, their time at the Mecca has fallen short of what they expected and some kind of a commitment to make that to make that right. And they're not getting that yet. And I I, um, actually agree with the, the ask for representation on the board. And I think that they need to have that. That's something that you can't, you can't skirt around. I'm reminded that Samuel L. Jackson actually got expelled from Morehouse for a period of time because he held the board hostage for a very similar ask. <laughs> um, I just don't know what the vice president could do with that, but maybe she is making phone calls and she's trying to pass Bill Back Better, which would actually appropriate more money to HBCUs like Howard. Let's talk about the elections. One of the things I appreciate about your, your being, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show is because you cover mayors and crime. And like most people don't, um, <laughs> they don't see that kind of intersection of the people doing the real work on the ground. How have the politics of crime changed and what insights could Democratic candidates in 2022 take from successful mayor races in 2021 as to how they navigate the new politics of crime and policing? Yeah, I mean, the city beat is so interesting because it's really where I think Democrats in particular are trying to test drive a lot of different policies and where they have the leeway to do so. 
some big takeaways from last Tuesday's elections, though, I think have a lot to do with messaging. Uh, One race that I was following really closely was the Minneapolis mayoral race, because in addition to electing a new mayor, they also had on the ballot essentially a measure that would totally uh, restructure its police system and, you know, reallocate funds from law enforcement into community initiatives. It ultimately failed. And uh, there were even a, a large number of, of black voters in Minneapolis who said, I really want police reform, but I'm not sure if this is how I want to see it. And so I think the politics of crime have changed, one, because we are kind of in the midst of a, a violence wave. We know that violent crime is up in cities, large and small nationwide. And so trying to restructure police departments in this time has been really tricky but there still is heightened attention to it. Um, And I think even, I think Minneapolis is really a lesson because this was the epicenter of last summer's protests against police violence. This is where George Floyd was killed. And, and so I think that's kind of a test. Daniel Daniel Rittenhouse is, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Still undergoing trial, right. As we speak. So, yeah. Right. And so you're seeing both exactly. You're seeing both sides of this, you know, with folks trying to really attempt reform and then also these kind of status quo uh, or, you know, really violent occurrences that have become the status quo have become commonplace, really playing out in the courts. And so I guess I say all that to say, you know, we this is an ongoing process and I think it starts. And this is what I've heard from organizers. And this is also what I've heard even from from mayoral candidates and current mayors is that it starts with kind of getting people's minds wrapped around what public safety looks like like. And that's not the same in every city. In fact, it's different in in every single place. Um, And you have voters in some places that even black voters who want, you know, stronger police presence in their communities, but not necessarily over policing. And then you have others like I followed even organizers in Atlanta who are working actively towards a police free future. I'm not sure how that will look in Atlanta, in Atlanta, because the politics there again are very different from Minneapolis. But it's really been fascinating to kind of see how this this argument over public safety and really how public safety and public health uh, fit together in in different cities um, this close to the ground. You know, see, I always tell folk that there is a great middle ground that has to be had because you you have the super democratic voting block of my mom and her friends who don't want less police. They just want better police. Yeah. And you have activists who don't necessarily have the voting strength because. We, we just don't vote. Millennials and general Gen Z don't vote. And so it's, it's an interesting, interesting conversation. And you're reporting now to kind of bring it back to, to what's at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. How are black voters processing the lack of progress in Washington around voting rights and police reform? And how do you think this will play out in a black voter engagement and enthusiasm in 2022? Yeah, you've like uh, asked the question that I'm asking myself and we'll be asking myself, I think, for the next 18 months. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to talk to, to I'm talking to pollsters and, and strategists and others who are who are trying to figure this out, too, honestly. And what I hear is that black voters are not necessarily looking at the daily ins and outs of what's happening between Congress and the White House. But what they do see on the ground are things like higher prices you know, continued difficulty in securing safe housing, regular everyday discrimination, COVID. Like there are still things that I think, you know, black voters are like, yes, I, I, I'm going to, many black voters are going to continue to vote, 
I think. But what I'm hearing is there are fewer and fewer incentives uh, for them to vote now. I think that the the lack of progress on voting rights was a big blow or has been a big blow to Democrats, the lack of progress on policing. But at the same time, getting back to like the city's beat, I think that's where you look to your mayors and your, your municipal leaders. But gridlock in Washington, I, I what I'm <laughs> trying to get at essentially is that it's not necessarily, at least in my view, something that Black voters are following, you know, the minutia of, but they do see it on the ground. And I think, you know, what we saw in Virginia with high turnout among Black voters and Latino voters, but still Democrats falling short, shows that the communication on exactly what Democrats are doing in Washington is another thing that needs to change. You just said a mouthful. You're not getting invited to the White House Christmas party. Um, Probably not. And that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm already not, I'm booking something else during that time. One of the things that, I mean, I've, I've stressed enough that the, the comms, you know, the fact that Kamala Harris isn't doing black radio like every week, the fact that she doesn't have like one event a week at HBCU or that they're not rolling out, you know, uh, Cecilia Rose, I believe is her name, um, to talk about some of the good things that are happening with our economy. I mean, it's just so many, they have, they have individuals who can do that, but they're not. And it's kind of frustrating because we're also not passing good legislation or legislation that people of color want. But on the flip side, it brings me to my question is that 2022, you're going to have a historic number of black candidates in Senate and gubernatorial races. And we're talking about candidates that are now establishment favorites and raising massive amounts of money. Um, you're, you know, Raphael Warnock, um, Mandela Barnes, um, Sherry Beasley, Val Deming, Stacey Abrams, and Tish James. Um, what do you think it says about where we are in Black politics when Black candidates are the headliners for some of the biggest races in the cycle? Yeah, this is, I think if you've been following Black politics for a long time, this is a really, really exciting moment because it's a couple of things. One, it's the early investment. You know, what I, like, what I saw, uh, the numbers coming, the FEC numbers coming out of, of Q3 you know, a full year ahead of next year's elections, Black candidates, Democrats and Republicans raising like $8 million in 90 days. That's huge. And that's a, that's a field clearing, that's a field clearing dynamic there. Like that's how you get ahead of, of your competition and are actually viable in a primary. And I think also it shows that members of not just you know, grassroots small dollar donors, but also the super wealthy white donor class in politics, Democrats and Republicans are not only noticing black candidates now, but willing to invest in them. We can talk about whether or not that's a product of a little bit of white guilt or if they really do genuinely want to see these candidates go far. But either way, I mean, this is a really exciting moment, I think, for black candidates because they do have now a viable shot where perhaps before you saw these really heavy investments in black candidates. I think, you know, Jamie Harrison will even tell you like he had, he raised a considerable amount of money. More than $110 million. That's like more than ever in history. But the bulk of that came in when like September, October. So it's really, really hard to be able to spend all that money in the last couple of months and really make a big difference. But that's different now. I mean, I think, you know, I have to check these numbers, but I'm pretty sure Warnock has 
like close to 30 or $40 million in cash on hand. Like that's, he can go on the airwaves tomorrow if he really wants to. And I'm already seeing mailers and, and stuff around. So it, it just goes to show you that it's not only a product of, uh, of folks that are paying attention to uh, black candidates, but also that they're willing to invest in them. And that's just going to give them all the more of a, of a runway this time next year. I said Cecilia Rose, I meant Cecilia Rouse, who's the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. But anyway, we have people who are of color who actually are in these spaces. But Mm -hmm. now, I mean, the trick question for you is what does it say about who really runs democratic politics when we see so many powerful black faces and candidates, and yet we don't see major progress? How do we translate our electoral power into governing priorities? Hmm. You know, before I, I came on the show, I like made a list of the number of black, not candidates, but black people in power and found like, you know, we just talked about the Senate candidates. We've got four cabinet members, I think six black House members who are chairing House committees. Harrison's over at the DNC this time next year, probably all five mayors of the top five biggest cities in the country are all going to be black. And this is really the question. And I think it's it's what are the limits of representation when you see uh, mm-hmm. black and black folks in these really, really high powered positions, but you don't see results for black folks. And we also know that, you know, when you deliver for black voters, you you tend to deliver for everyone. I think. I mean, this is really hard because it's true, like you're. you're We're still in a a, 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 black Americans are still in a really tough position on all fronts. And I I guess, you know, I'm I'm not sure what it says. I I think it I think it's a product of the system and how hard it is to break into it and then how much harder it is to actually operate within it. And we're seeing that I don't want to I don't want to take shots at at this this administration or anybody else and uh, jeopardize my sourcing. But folks have definitely shared with me off the record these struggles, which is they've broken this glass ceiling or made this history by actually getting into these offices. But then they find that once they're actually they have the seat at the table, but they don't really have much of a voice or maybe their voice is muted and, you know, traditions and things that have been in place for years really still inhibited their ability to deliver uh, for their constituents. And this is definitely an argument I see quite a bit within the Congressional Black Caucus, where you have folks who have served in the House, I mean, for decades and decades, who got in uh, specifically to shake the table and deliver for, for Black voters. But, you know, you look at progress on voting rights and policing, in particular, the two big asks of this year. And I think a lot of voters and um, a lot of folks who voted, a lot of people who just support these candidates are, are wondering kind of what their return on investment is going to be. I mean, I, does that, how does that translate into 2022? I, I know you said that in 2021, we didn't have any, any drop off. In fact, you had a, you know, the, a good number of black and Hispanic voters. Does, does that carry over into 2022 or do you, in your reporting, are you seeing that that disappointment is becoming so saturated that there may be a lull. I think you have to look you, like a little bit closer into, uh, you know, the black voter, Latino voter profile, because you definitely had the same profile of folks who always vote, right? The kind of 65 plus black voters who are always going to turn out no matter what. But the folks that I'm really interested in looking at are people my age, yeah. young voters, first time voters, people who maybe vote every other election, people who only vote every four years, People who might have only voted once before or still might be first time voters. And that's what everybody should be looking at, because the question is, how are you going to get them to turn out? 
And I think the answer is by having something for them to vote for. And when I talk to folks who either do focus groups with these voters or, you know, organizers who work directly with them, even they're exasperated with <laughs> largely with Democrats because they have control of all three branches of government. Um, and they still have not been able to kind of get over that hump with being able to, at least in, in, in this time, uh, deliver on what they said they were going to. So I, I will, that's really one big question that I'm aiming to answer is, you know, how do Democrats change their messaging? Will they change their messaging if they're not exactly able to deliver on the policies that they need for the voters that they need, how are they going to get them to turn out to say, maybe give us two more years or <laughs> let's. I mean, that was my next question because, and I wanted you to just, you know, go back to your reporting that you saw in Virginia and in New Jersey, but like the overwhelmingly white consultants and, and vendors, you know, ignoring black media that relegate black operatives to field work and then in the last few weeks fly in cbc members and black surrogates to go to black churches and have fish fries i mean yeah did we learn anything or in what you saw in virginia and new jersey say that it's going to be more the same in the next i mean i i i'm of the mind that barber shops and black churches only get you so far because those are the profile that's the profile of voter that was likely going to turn out anyway and I think in a pandemic, you're just not going to get as many people maybe as you thought uh, in, in terms of having those public events. And the one thing that everybody has told me, especially consultants of color, is that the investment is just coming way too late. You don't like it takes much longer than six weeks uh, to actually get black, Latino, Asian voters out. And a lot of consultants of color who are really, really interested in these big big checks to be working with these campaigns, you know, for years out. I mean, they're saying we should start recruiting black voters in these battleground states. We should start mobilizing them now. That's what I'm hearing in Metro Atlanta. That's what I heard even in Virginia, looking to other states What I'm hearing in like Wisconsin and Kentucky. They're saying we need to start investing now. But then also, as you, the point that you made, like consultants of color and vendors of color are often relegated to, uh, you know, this six week out operation where really they they have the tools to run an entire campaign. They're just not really given the chance. And uh, they're only then really used for their connections with minority media. Uh, so that's another big part of this is, is the diversity of the folks who are making these these really key campaign decisions. It's not always the political directors or even the campaign managers. It's the consultants and the media buyers. So I think I, I mean, I think Virginia was a wake up call. Uh, for a number of Democrats, that more of the same is not going to be what wins elections. Um, but we'll see how they decide to act on that and, and how that might look, because, of course, every political operation is different. And I know that folks in Georgia saw what happened in Virginia and immediately, uh, you know, understood kind of what their marching orders were. But that's an operation that's, you know, 10 years in the making to flip Georgia blue in 2020. So they, they just kind of have more of an infrastructure in place to be able to, to fine tune, you know, the organizing that they want to do. Yeah. Well, I know I just said a lot. <laughs> uh, it's probably gonna be a lot of this. Nothing you said was incorrect though, or even challengeable. I mean, it's, it's based on your reporting and it bore out and it probably will bear out in the future, which brings me to my last question. This 30 minutes has gone by extremely fast. This has been a great interview. Give me some bold predictions here. 
Uh, do Democrats or Republicans keep the House, lose the House? Do you think that Raphael Warnock, I mean, in a battle of black statewide candidates, I mean, in Georgia, right? Who would have ever thunk it? Um, what, what do you think happens? And of the list of black candidates, which ones do you think are putting themselves in the best position based on where they are running? to prevail in 2022. We'll have to listen to this this time next year and just see how correct I am. Um, (laughs) I don't, I I don't know that. I I mean, it's kind of almost common knowledge. Now Democrats are going to have a really hard time keeping the house if they can at all. Like the writing is on the wall there, even with redistricting, it's going to be virtually impossible for Democrats to keep the house and really, really tough for them to keep the Senate. But one thing I think that we will see are more Black Senate candidates in these primaries, winning these primaries, perhaps, than we've seen before, especially in the Deep South. And that'll be pretty cool. I mean, I think that a lot of these Black candidates have really good teams because they've raised a lot of money. They've been able to staff up with, you know, the top operatives in the country and and still are. So, you know, I think the the operation that Val Demings has built in Florida, that's my home state. So, you know, talking with folks at home, they are really excited about that. And it's always a plus when you're challenging like a big name Republican like Marco Rubio, that's just going to give you a lot of built in kind of grassroots support. Really interested in seeing how the race between Sherry Beasley and Jeff Jackson plays out in North Carolina as well. Another example of, you know, I mean, she outraised Jeff Jackson in Q3. Not that we should read too far into that, but that's still pretty significant. And I think that's going to be a close race. Um, also interested in the governor's race in Arkansas, Chris Jones taking on. Great um, candidate. Sarah yeah. Huckabee, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Huckabee Sanders. I, I, you, know, you know, people, when you look at these races, I don't think you can look at wins and losses per se. I'm interested to see if he can get to 45%. I don't think Chris Jones has a chance in hell of being the next governor of Arkansas. Love him. Love his candidacy. Think he's brilliant. We'll have him on the show. But I think it's like, can you get the 45? Can you get the 46? Can you begin to chip away at that glass ceiling? And what does that tell us, you know, and what do what do organizers in other states, especially in the deep south, see when they see that? What are the notes that we can take away from that? Where are the Abrams wannabes all across the deep south that are that are trying to replicate this so that in 2024 and 2028, you know, we might have two or three black senators, even if Democrats don't have the majority. And that is a scenario that I think is possible, maybe not next year, but in the future where it's the diversity uh, diversity might be there. Whether or not Democrats actually have the power is another question. Oh, my goodness. You have been a, a pleasure to have on. I've had on some others, some of your other colleagues, Caputo and others. You're much better than Caputo, though. And you can tell about oh, that. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, Don't but, um, mark that. <laughs> <laughs> Mike King, thank you for joining the Bukhari Sellers podcast. Have a blessed day. Thanks for having me.